When we think about sustainable finance, we tend to focus on the capital needs for renewable energy products, green bonds, and carbon trading and credits. While these are all key components of sustainable finance, they do not begin to tell the full sustainable finance story. On today's episode of Raising Your Antenna, I speak with Nicole Anderson, CEO of Red Sand Group. Every organization thinks they are unique, but Red Sand, at least from where I sit, really is unique. Red Sand specializes in innovation strategy, investment, and venture for companies that are pushing the boundaries of sustainable finance. I'm pretty sure that most of my listeners with a background and a sophisticated background in sustainable finance will be amazed at the innovation and disruption that is poised to upend the industry, as well as provide it with the scale it needs to fund the estimated 60 trillion, let me say that again, 60 trillion in debt investment that is needed, according to some studies, I think specifically the United Nations study, to affect meaningful change across the industry. Nicole's background cuts a wide swath across the sustainability ecosystem. And today's conversation reflects both her smarts and innovative mind. If I had to recap her overall thesis in one sentence, it would be to paraphrase Churchill. We are at the end of the beginning, not the beginning of the end. Back with Nicole, in a lickety split. You're listening to Raising Your Antenna with host Keith Sackheim. Hello, Nicole. Good morning and welcome to Raising Your Antenna. So happy to have you on the podcast today. And I think as we discussed before, it's nice to have conversations uh, right now that are related to topics that are not specifically COVID-19. Um, So anyway, welcome aboard. The first thing I'm going to ask, Nicole, is for you to share with our listeners uh, your professional journey. You've uh, you've done a lot of interesting things uh, in the world of sustainability and financial services innovation, impact investing. I know you've kind of combined all of that into your current organization called Red Sand. So if you can kind of give us how you got here and then we can jump into the questions. Uh, once again, welcome to Raising Your Antenna. Thank you for that introduction, Keith. And yeah, I mean, fantastic opportunity and what a time in our, in our history. Um, so a little bit about me. I am, as you say, I've had a fairly checkered career, but a good one in that I've, I've been involved in financial services innovation for as long as I can remember, but very actively, certainly for the last decade, predominantly focused on financial inclusion as a, a mainstay for where I was focusing my energy. And I was very much focused on the entrepreneurial side uh, of the debate, looking at running my own startups um, initially, going through the pain, but certainly going through living and breathing the use cases um, that would make a difference from an impact perspective to people's lives, um, helping them really be equipped to deal with their financial futures in various guises. And then I shifted to taking that insight and that experience to the the, the corporate and, um, business owners, corporate strategy offices, 
uh, corporate venture I spent a bit of time in, helping them bring that, you know, very real experiential cutting edge thinking to how they recreate and reinvent. Um, which then led me to actually build out a, essentially what is typically called a, a venture studio where I was creating startups and disruptive businesses, whole businesses on behalf of institutional clients because typically they're pretty bad at <laughs> doing anything innovative um, and very often too risk averse. So I think there's a lot of industries like that where when the current business model is reaping lots of rewards, the incentive for innovation is not there. Unfortunately, those business models don't stay forever. And then they're yeah. caught with their pants down with lack of innovation. So, you know, we've had those conversations as an agency with clients for years. So I totally can appreciate both the challenge and the opportunity for you. Yeah, absolutely. Especially in financial services, you know, I mean, there's precious few that are brave enough um, elastic enough to, to kind of think differently when, you know, the money and the bonuses are coming in thick and fast. So, so I've, I've, I've been, I've been, you know, working with institutions for as long as I can remember corporate ventures, you know, spent a lot of time in corporate venture, um, and then built my own ventures on behalf of corporates. Um, what has happened is because of that journey, I've also been exposed to a lot of co-investors in investment circles, um, and it now it has now culminated, so to speak, in a business model that is allowing me to deploy capital into the ventures that I'm exposed to or create. So that's my business model. Um, I essentially am a full stack uh, innovation offering, taking an idea right through to a business and providing my own capital, if need be, um, to to what I believe in is going to really make a difference. And the last thing I can add to that is within the last two years. Again, very organically, I moved away from mostly kind of social impact or financial inclusion innovation in finance to what is typically now being coined green fintech, which is actually looking at how the environmental issues of the day have, could be solved by financial services being far more innovative. Um, how could financial services look at the green agenda and they them and, and reinvent? products and services themselves or actually help with the businesses they are tr trying to transition or need to transition to a greener future. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Um, and I think that that's a great kind of background that uh, will serve to provide a framework for all that we discussed today. Uh, you know, Nicole, you sit at the crossroads, as you said, um, of financial services, innovation, we just called green fintech. Uh, sustainability and climate change. And it's been more than a decade since corporate America began to address sustainable manufacturing, sustainable supply chains, circular economy. You know, but for most of it, it seemed to be lip service and not much else. You know, I, I've had a marketing and public relations agency for now about 15 years, and we've always been in the clean tech, energy technology space. And for those 15 years, there's been a lot of promises uh, made, very few kept. I think we see that's changing in corporate America, it's probably slower than we want, but it's changing. But, you know, financial services, as you said, has been seen to be an even later arriving guest to this party. Yet it has arrived. And there are those pioneering that transition and those like you that are prodding that transition as well. Can you please reflect on that pathway in financial services or that journey 
from the recognition of the problem in a, in a genuine way yeah. to then action. And what, in your opinion, has driven that change? Of course, Keith. So, look, I mean, I think financial services is arriving, um, is arriving, um, maybe in the last three or so four weeks, maybe faster, you know, that uh, arrivals hall is filling up. But what a journey we still have to go on. But I think the first trigger for financial services to think differently was essentially, you know, the financial crisis of 2008, right? So that was that was the initial kind of shakeup, um, certainly in our lifetimes, of the industry realizing that the bottom could fall out very, very quickly, and also realizing how the interdependencies in a very complex and unnecessarily complex web of codependency and co-risk could mean catastrophe for the industry. In any dark, you know, winter, um, you 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 huddle you huddle together and think of warmer climes, and you know that's an analogy for what happened. So what we saw is back end of 2010-11, this emergence of really in entrepreneurial ideas coming to the fore. Many of those, by the way, are were ex bankers, or you know, if you can call it that, moving having no other choice but to actually think about their industry in a different way, having, you know, lost their jobs, um, but also blended globally with a surge of great thinkers, great entrepreneurs. Um, and that was how FinTech was born. Um, at that time, the primary driver, as you well know, was really essentially, you know, a consumer credit crisis. Um, and so FinTech took off because it was trying to address um, again, this kind of inclusion challenge. So it started off with very basic transactional um, drivers, you know, how you can move money digitally and how could tech companies come in and, and eat, you know, tr transactional banking lunch, so to speak. Um, and then it moved up the financial value chain. But that's all good and well, but that was really predominantly um, the, the, the drivers for the financial service industry at that time were predominantly focused on, well, how could we be, get better at serving our clients or acquire more clients? Uh, how could we protect ourselves from not being relevant in the future? What happened in 2015 is we had um, the Paris Agreement, late 2015, I believe, um, memory serves me right. Um, and that was a different call on the financial services community globally. Really, the Paris Agreement was there to drive a unification of governments and essentially the fabric that fuels economies, i.e. finance, to look very, very harshly at how together, in unison, we could protect our, 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 our planet from a 2 degree or 1.5 degree uh, increase, which would mean catastrophe on so many levels. I mean, and I think the proof is, is already um, very, very evident. Um, and what that was, was a very different tension. Um, here we saw um, certainly the UN, along with a number of global authorities, state very publicly that central banks um, and governments could only go so far in providing the necessary transitional capital to move to a circular economy or the, the you know low carbon 
or net zero, pick, you know, pick your, <laughs> pick your destination, private markets would have to kick in and private markets have been pretty slow, right? For the last five years, um, the financial services industry has focused on, begun to kind of get its head around green finance. And really it's only tangible output has been the green debt or green bond market, which even to date, last count, I think end of 2019, it sits around, sits at around 200, slightly under $260 billion. Um, you know, that's the value of the green bond market, which represents in total less than 3% of the total bond or debt market globally. So it's still a small, um, it's still a very small space, but growing every year, it's growing, it's on an uptick. Um, but really, there is a ton load to do in terms of how, you know, how financial services can reinvent um, components of how it deploys capital um, to where it's needed most. Um, and that's, and that, so, that, Nicole, I think is kind of a perfect segue. And I think it relates to what you're going to say next to, to kind of the next thing I wanted to address, which is, okay, so, so the green bond market has been, I guess, the first salvo um, of sorts for the you know financial services industry to begin to engage seriously uh, with, with these issues. But I know that you, you really look a lot at financial innovation and technology space. Um, and, and outside of the growth of the, the green bond market, you know, can we talk about that, you know, the financial innovation space and you know both the social good that yeah. it entails, uh, but also um, you know again these are investors, and investors in our system look for returns. You know the economic upside of that innovation as well. So there's plenty opportunity to you know put a lens of innovation on on what needs to happen. So yeah, I focus you know uh, just really trying to give you kind of a potted history of where we are. But if yep. We look at, you know, the insertion um, of where change could be made. It's, it's across the entire value chain. Now, the difference now is that the pressure is um, top down. And top down, by top down, I mean it's very much an institutional challenge, right? So at an institutional level, there needs to be a lot done to unlock capital. And so already we're starting to see a real need for institutions, all shapes and sizes, to actually um, evaluate where capital is deployed and how it's deployed. So not only the means of capital, the investment financial instruments, but actually can they be sure of where that money is going, um, hand on heart? Is it truly green? Can they avoid being um, scrutinized and penalized for greenwashing? Um, can they move beyond you know, uh, public companies into more in, in pri into private markets where perhaps there's amazing stuff going on, but they just don't have the visibility. And so there is a whole area of uh, essentially the ESG tech, it's a terrible term, but anyway, it's what we have, which is environmental social governance technology, AI, uh, a lot of blockchain capability coming through in the mix to actually um, huge amount of data analytics and machine learning to, to help us massage and morph a growing need for scrutiny around real life data that sits really buried in our economies, in micro economies, in businesses, which before the financial community haven't needed to even bother with, right? Because that scrutiny hasn't been there. 
um, and really businesses haven't had to be green. So there's a ton load we can do there. Then of course, the innovation starts shifting to, okay, now that we know potentially where we could invest and how we could invest, how do we monitor that investment? How do we make sure that you know, things don't go off the rail? How do we underwrite um, businesses? How do we get more creative around risk of businesses? So of course, there's a huge implication for insurers, whether it be personal lines or commercial um, insurers, um, carriers, as you say, in the US. Um, and then, of course, you have to look at the consumer. You have to look at people like you and me that are thinking, hold on a second, you know, I can see the world changing around me. I am really, if I can, and I have the ability to put my money to work, I need to make choices, responsible choices with my money, who I align with in my, you know, in, in my finance, financial services partners, the products I choose. Um, and so the whole area of wealth creation is a big topic when we look at innovation. And we've already seen this, we've already seen a change in generational, you know, the change in the generational shift, um, forget the M word, but just the, the wake up call that investors are having around lack of trust in traditional investment management and choices they've made in the past, the lack of transparency they've had, the high costs they've had in terms of deploying money, the lack of performance, of course, or now, you know, perhaps shocking performance of markets globally has really stirred this part of individuals saying, hold on a second, I, I, I want better service, better transparency, better choice. And I really want to know where my money is being put to work. I'm no longer satisfied with an opaque, you know, very costly service from the wealth management industry. That makes a lot of sense, not just in finance. I think that's a trend we're seeing pretty much in, you know, with all institutions that there's a crisis of leadership, a crisis of confidence, this, um, I think a craving for disintermediation uh, between, um, you know, let's call them the, uh, you know, legacy institutions and consumers and trying to figure out, uh, you know, how one can, can again, begin to wean off of what was, uh, you know, traditional institutions and how we see them today and how we see them being led. So I, I think that kind of what you're articulating, um, uh, you know, on the financial, you know, technology side, to the extent that it can make things more transparent, more measurable, um, and, you know, provide more confidence to the consumers, um, you know, that, that I think is, is important in financial services. And it's going to be important, actually, in probably every industry right now. Absolutely. And, and, you know, not because I have no, I've never had a financial services career, you know, it, it's the irony of it all is I'm embedded in this industry, and I've never been a banker, thankfully, so I don't suffer <laughs> any stress <laughs> related to that. Your um, credibility you know, is intact. Exactly. I mean, look, I, I you know, the world is, the world is, um, we've got to be thankful for a lot of what the financial services industry Of course, of course. Work. Um, but no, you're absolutely right. So I think there's a ton to do. I think um, the point I wanted to make is um, what is a mainstay is that irrespective of the challenge, very often the protagonist is not the best um, to default to or to consult with to find the solution, right? We know that. 
And so I am a big proponent. I have my soapbox. It's virtual now, very much virtual. Uh, any platform I can get to actually, you know, push, push the envelope for organizations that have established ways of thinking to actually really turn outside and look outside. And I'm desperately trying it with the tools and the mechanisms I've got to provide that, that, um, access to great outside thinking because that is what it's going to take. Okay, great. Um, that makes a lot of sense. And, and thank you for, for that response. And, you know, there's a lot there to think about and internalize. Um, you know, moving on, most would agree that one of the bottlenecks for unleashing the full impact of the financial services sector and combating climate change is the regulatory uncertainty and either the lack of desire or the inability of governments to either incentivize or coerce compliance. I know the Paris Agreement, you know, laid out um, some of that, uh, but again, it wasn't, not every country was a signatory to that, including uh, my own. So, you know, what is, in your opinion, kind of what is the right balance that government should strike uh, in terms of partnering with the private sector um, and incentivizing them but at the same time, uh, being, willy, being willing uh, to um, pound, I guess, its, its iron fist in, you know, to, to coerce them to comply. Mm. Um, it is a balancing act. And I think it's certainly not something that is, you know, the level of intervention, intervention isn't stable because markets evolve and markets contract and expand. And new challenges emerge. Um, and at every juncture, there is, um, there is a dimension that state-led activity or government-led activity can play a significant role. And then the private market, you know, has, has a role. Um, I think where we are now is certainly there are some underpinning themes that are consistent, and that is um, consumer protection should come from you know financial stability and consumer protection should come from from government institutions right and and regulators for, for sure but those very same players specifically on the regulation side are also proponents for uh competition um and actually on balance if if irrespective of you know where you are in the market those levers are important levers for regulators and governments to actually think about what well, does the market need more expansion right therefore we're going to encourage more competition um, and that's again fueled a lot of the kind of open innovation that many regulators um, including the SEC you know have have embraced um, but at times of contraction and, in, and instability or or threat then perhaps the the kind of competitive innovation needs to tone down a bit, but actually more fundamental um, innovation, operational stability, um, scrutiny, some of the kind of areas I've mentioned around, around kind of institutional innovation is more appropriate. Um, uh, but the most important thing is that regulators and governments and their big institutions do work together, um, not in coercion, because there's obviously that's a whole different debate, but actually to create better choice and better, better protection for you and I, because ultimately that's what matters in this entire game. 
Yeah, I mean, agreed. Um, but, you know, there are things, for example, when I, when I think about where government uh, maybe can take, I don't, know, I don't know if punitive is the right word, but certainly more of an aggressive uh, stance in terms of really trying to be an impetus for change would be, for example, around subsidies, right? So you have these legacy subsidies or you can call them externalities or external costs, what have you, that tend to punish innovation and reward, um, you know, the old way of doing business, older technologies, you know, fossil fuels, dirty, you know, uh, less clean ways of extraction, um, the externalities of, of, of traditional energy costs, those types of things. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so w where should government play a role in that, if any? Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, no, totally. Um, so, so, so regulation, um, what, what we're seeing certainly in the area of sustainable finance, and I, you know, I use the word at the moment, sustainable and green, fairly interchangeably, um, is, um, is that there is a full, well, there is a lot of, obviously, a lot of thought going into how do we get consistency around um, organizing, encouraging, or penalizing institutions from a regulatory perspective on um, aiding the transition to a green economy, um, or um, you know, certainly stepping in where we think they are actually doing the opposite, right, um, and carrying on as per normal. Um, the challenge thus far is certainly globally there is no consistency. Um, irrespective of, um, the, you know, the, the area of finance, um, there is no consistency, there is no consistent taxonomy. I think the best example we have seen is, is the EU, who actually just in the middle of March, I was in Brussels, I managed to get in and out, um, and we were working in collaboration. Again, a great example, someone like myself being invited to Brussels to actually talk about how they create um, a new circular economy taxonomy for regulation um, so they've aptly named named it the circular economy finance support program bit of a mouthful but actually what that does is it act they are acting as an aid um, to create consistency across all the European countries around how they uh, evaluate capital deployment. Um, and um, that is at a, a fund level, um, asset management level, how they incentivize the finance ministers of every single country to provide legislation. That means asset managers have to declare and be open to assessment and scrutiny of any portfolio structure so that they avoid you know, we can avoid greenwashing. Um, and when they say their portfolio structure is green, it really is green, depending on the shade of green, because it's not just green and not green, right? There are many shades of green. Um, that's a really good example, um, I think, of both carrot and stick of where regulation and, the, and, and, and governments can um, be, step in and, and, and take a, a, a firm stance. But the issue is it's not a global standard. And of course, most institutions operate globally. Yeah. So what you will get is, and this has always been the case, is you get regulatory arbitrage. So you'll get a flow of activity to perhaps the wrong activities in certain markets because they can get away with it. And this is something we've got to overcome. Yeah, and that makes sense. And in, in, in kind of, you know, the globalized economy and one of the backlashes against globalization is that, uh, you know, if, if one country or one you know, uh, region has certain types of regulations that's going to dis, I, I guess it's, it's going to impact them unfavorably vis-a-vis -vis 
the other mm-hmm. country or region that doesn't have those and, and energy that that's for sure true. Um, okay. You know, uh, moving on, you had given me a number, and I think it came from the UN, uh, of 60 trillion. Again, I can't get my head around what that actually means. I was thinking about that yesterday in light of, in the US, they're talking about a $2 trillion uh, kind of stimulus fund right now, and just trying to understand $2 trillion is, is that those numbers are mind-boggling. But you know, the number of 60 trillion is the amount of debt investment necessary to affect meaningful change across the industry. Can you explain the mechanisms that, and you have already to a certain degree, but maybe just expand on the mechanisms that will allocate this amount of capital, whether it's green bonds, impact investing, renewable energy asset portfolios. And of course, you've spoken about some of the, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the innovation and technology um, yeah. that, that you're working on. Yeah, it's an enormous sum, right? So, I mean, Keith, and some depending on the day of the week, <laughs> um, it, it varies between 60 and 90, right, trillion. So it's a huge amount. Um, and really, this number is an aggregation of a number of sources. Um, these sources vary from, you know, the G20, the International Energy Agency, um, obviously the UN and all the UN affiliate organizations in how capital needs to be deployed and could be deployed. And some of the descriptors are very high level and some of them are more specific. But just to give you some examples, right? So um, if you look at the World Business Council for Sustainable, Sustainable Development, who I was with this morning, in fact, um, who've just, by the way, graded global cities in terms of green finance. So that's an index you, you should look out for. Very interesting to see who's coming up tops there. London is doing okay. Uh, anyway, they are saying- Yeah, what well, we'll do is actually, we'll, we'll uh, you know, if you can send us a link or we can look it up and, and add that to the show notes, I think people would be very interested in seeing that. I will. I'll send that through. Um, so they, they said, look, to implement sustainable growth around major economies around the world, we need to be implementing 0.5 to $1.5 trillion per year um, by, sorry, three, sorry, that was by 2020. But now between up until to, 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 uh, 2050, we need to be deploying between three and 10 trillion um, globally every year. Um, to meet the to meet the below two degree target of the Paris Agreement, the International Energy Agency is saying we have to spend 65 trillion by 2035, just 15 years away. Um, the UN has said quite clearly. So basically, in order to support developing country uh, countries. Um, in climate change mitigation, we need to be spending $100 billion per year um, within the next three years. So these numbers are, you know, that's just an aggregation. And again, I'll um, provide you very, with a neat source where these numbers are coming from, is why, you know, this number is so enormous, um, but it's coming from various agencies calling for, you know, whether it be at a macro level or micro level, for money to be deployed, and 80% of this capital has to come from private markets. Um, and, and that's the reality. So how do private markets uh, essentially themselves get ready to be able to unleash capital, unlock capital? How do they do this efficient, efficiently? 
How do they position themselves to be educated enough to release the capital, which is another topic we've spoken about. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, you know, Nicole, one of the things I know we both set out to do for this podcast was to give people a break from, you know, focusing exclusively on on, on Corona and all of its implications. Um, but, you know, f- for the last uh, kind of issue I want to focus on or the last piece of analysis uh, does relate to Corona uh, in the sense that I think people recognize right now that, that whenever we do emerge uh, from this issue, from these turbulent times, uh, there are going to be consequences uh, and impacts on all facets of society uh, and business for years to come. Um, I've seen some recent analysis. I think there was an article in the Journal of the Times um, this week. Uh, so there's been analysis and some thinking around the similarities uh, between the lack of preparedness for an outbreak of a pandemic. And again, you know, maybe nobody knew exactly what that pandemic would look like. Um, but there's been for decades now, um, you know, a lot of thinkers and government people and, and health officials who have said we're not prepared for a pandemic. And I think we're seeing that bear out today. So, you know, on the one hand, we have this lack of preparedness for a pandemic, yeah. which we're suffering from right now. And then if you look uh, at the dearth of any serious measures that have been taken to combat what we all know are experiencing today, but are going to get worse, the ill effects of climate change. Uh, so, you know, what are your thoughts on that analog? Um, is it a fair one? And might one of the silver linings of the coronavirus be to serve as a wake-up call for governments and business leaders to begin to prepare and take the climate change threat more seriously? I totally agree um, <laughs> with that. Um, yeah, I mean, fundamentally, what this pandemic has done is taken global markets by complete surprise. Right now, here and now, you know, in the, on this day, in this week um, of March, what corona, the coronavirus epidemic, uh, pandemic represents for global economies is basically um, a dire need for immediate liquidity, right? Um, and as such, certainly the private markets, financial services um, uh, companies globally in, in the world, you know, they just can't move fast, fast enough. So what we've seen is we've seen government and central banks step in um, and have offered up levers, right? Capital buffers, extended facilities, um, and this ranges uh, all over the world. But, you know, that, we, that is what we've had to, to do in, in the extremely short period of time in order to, to render some relief to businesses and, and, and individuals. Um, so it is a massive wake-up call to certainly the private market players in finance in terms of how they ready themselves. Um, they have totally, I believe, been way too far away from the potential um, ramifications of such a disaster. Um, and this will serve as a wake-up call. But, you know, what can they do to help? Well, I mean, I think this is a perfect time to rethink so many of the things we've already discussed on this podcast. Predominantly, um, if you start at one end, there has to be a rethink and a serious rethink around consumer access to to credit. Um, That is a huge topic. I don't think we've even begun to scratch the surface in terms of what this new, new situation has shed light on. 
Um, and this is a global phenomenon. So um, the antithesis to that, of course, is how do people, individuals prepare for their own future wealth creation because this is an eroding reality so how do markets how do products and services um, educate and prepare people to to strike the balance no matter how no matter how fine between you know credit and and savings um, Risk, you know, risk and um, credit risk is something that has really been a frustrating sore point for so many for so long. I think that would be a huge thing that could be looked at, um, certainly for um, retail banking and, and some commercial banking. Um, there's a ton load to do in terms of unlocking capital for businesses of all shapes and sizes. I think creating incentives, you know, financial services could and should be creating the levers for businesses to get credit, to provide them with investment um, in far more flexible ways, um, but to incentivize them. You know, I think what you're seeing is people will do what's required in order to, to qualify um, if they can within their means, but to make things so impossible and, you know, to endure such time lags to access to finance historically has been a problem, let alone now. Um, and then I think really, you know, putting pressure on big business already, I mean, you know, some of our biggest names in logistics and consumer goods um, and medicine, uh, you name it, are going to come under pressure. But what role does big business have to play in its trans transformational journey? Um, what role does its suppliers and supply chain and how it treats its network? Because essentially, you know, this is a, a proof point of this pandemic of how these physical supply chains are breaking down, sometimes for commercial reasons, sometimes because of the lack of incentives. How could finance oil those wheels? And I have one more thought on this. Um, I'm fascinated by, again, the surplus so the surplus of, of capital in the market when it comes to green finance, because it is surplus, um, it is predominantly debt capital. But if you look at how um, the bond, the world bond markets have responded to the corona's hit, it's catastrophic, which means institutional debt is sitting on basically a very porous bucket. Uh, what are they going to do with that capital? How are they going to put it to work? Um, and I myself am beginning to construct ways in which new financial instruments can be created um, in, in ways in which you can unlock that debt, but actually deploy it as, for example, equity loan note structures, which give people long terms, access to finance, much longer terms, um, provide lenders with a return in equity markets or private equity markets, individual companies, um, but actually put put their essentially you know very strong uh, essentially capital pools, which are only going to go in the wrong direction to work for positive good for real impact. So there's plenty that can be done, um, and I think if great minds put their heads together and those great minds come from all sides, not just within the financial industry um, and it's global things, great things can be achieved through this incredibly, you know, uncertain period. 
Yeah, Nicola. And uh, not to make you blush, but it's pretty clear from uh, the content of this podcast that you are definitely one of those great minds uh, and, and you, you're clearly part of these, these bigger conversations. So, uh, you know, we all wish you much luck uh, in your business endeavors and know that, uh, you know, the progress and innovation that you're able uh, to inspire is going to ultimately help all of us. So, uh, you know, thank you for that. Uh, and in general, thank you for uh, spending uh, the time with us. Uh, I, I think I know that, uh, you know, our, our listeners are going to find it both uh, interesting uh, and useful uh, in their in their walks of business life. Uh, so, Nicole, thanks again. And uh, stay safe and, and look thank forward you. to hopefully meeting you on one of the sides of the ponds uh, once we're able to travel again. Oh, absolutely. I, I'd love to do that. Yeah, no, thank you. Keep well, keep safe. And, you know, uh, we've all got responsibility to get far more positive um, about the opportunity that this period offers up to us. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you. And we'll talk soon. And another episode of Raising Your Antenna is in the books. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and look forward to connecting again next week. Raising Your Antenna is a weekly podcast hosted by yours truly, Keith Zakheim, that features the movers and shakers and key influencers of the B2B technology industry. Our guests are leading revolutions and disruptions in the mobility, clean energy, healthcare, and real estate technology industries. Raising Your Antenna is brought to you by Antenna Group, a full-service digital marketing and public relations agency that focuses on the B2B technology industry. Please be in touch with me on Twitter at czakheim with any feedback about this podcast. And check out Antenna Group at www.antennagroup.com if your organization is looking for a really smart and good-looking marketing and public relations partner.